Okay, good evening to one and all. Um, first of all, our Torah learning this evening should be to accrue merit for Liba Bracha Bas Yisrael Michal, the daughter of a dear friend who is doing great. And why not to accrue merit for people who are doing great? We're always used to uh, learning Torah for people who are sick and who are not well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we live in a world where preventative medicine is already a, uh, a, a very serious business. So... Um, she should have continued merit. She should be zochet to raise her l'tore l'chupal l'maisin tovim. I was just mentioning that tonight, the piece that we're going to learn, we've now reached the fourth parak of Oros HaTorah. <coughs> and it's a rather difficult uh, teaching here that Rav is going to, to try to learn together with us and to teach us here. Shalom, shalom. Uh, and we'll do our best. We'll do our best. Um, I mentioned a second ago that the Sefer has been translated a number of times into English, uh, slightly different translations. And um, that may not even help, you know? It's not so much the... I mean, the translation is, is definitely part of, the, part of the challenge of Cook wrote in his own flowery Lashna Kodesh, sometimes inventing words, using the rules of Hebrew grammar. He wasn't inventing them out of whole cloth, but he was inventing them in the sense that um, no one had used these words before. And in fact, maybe when we get towards the end of the piece, if we're so lucky to progress to the end of the piece tonight, then, um, then we'll actually get a little bit of a taste of that. How Rav Cook's inventing words and inventing a language for us to be able to use is actually part of the process of what he's describing here. Um, the last thing that I will note as a piece of personal news is that I am, I wouldn't say nearing the completion, but I am well underway and I'll say nearing the completion, even though not quite, um, in putting out a volume of a trans- the first of its kind, the translation of Oros HaTorah from Rav Kook, which is very exciting. Um, and the translation is completed and is in the editing phase right now. And the, thank you so much. And the, and the commentary, which is going along with it, which is in the back of the Sefer, is every day nearing more and more closer to completion. So, Bezat Hashem, I will keep everybody posted on that, but since we're talking about uh, translations, it's a hard thing to do. It's really, really hard. And even the people who did it well for Orsa Tshuva, um, it's just, uh, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. So let's first start with the name of the chapter. The chapter is Perak Dalet, HaTshuva HaPratis HaYechides, that's quite a mouthful. There is something called tshuva pratis which means the individual person's path to tshuva. But we also know that every person is an olam malay. And what happens for each individual in his or her own life, in terms of their own development, their own self-actualization, and their own ups and downs, their own mistakes and trips and falling along the way, all of that is mirroring a cosmic story, a, cos- a cosmic narrative which is unfolding since the very beginning of the world. And therefore, of Cook writes that there's a tshuva pratis yechidis. There's my story. There's the story of, of David Weinberg and my personal journey from the beginning of my life and all of the ups and the downs and the mess-ups along the way and the proud moments along the way and... And all of those are part of the process of, of tshuva. And that mirrors, on a certain level, the tshuva ha-klolis ha-tziboris ha-olamis. 
the more generalized, first of all, tzibori, the first, the more generalized kind of um, communal tshuva, but then it actually expands to olamis, to the entire universe, to the entire cosmos. Ba'olam u'beknesis Yisrael. And that expresses itself in the world, and it expresses itself in Knesset Yisrael, it expresses itself in the Jewish people. So I would say there is, there's concentric circles of tshuva going on. My, and, and it must be in that way. Rav Cook is going to speak here in very broad terms. He's going to talk here about the tshuva olamis that's going on, that the world is literally returning to its state. The world, the cosmos. However, the title of the chapter is very precise. And as we'll see as we go through the chapter, he, he starts big and then he, you know, kind of like zooms in and works his way back up. For the world to attain its proper tshuva, for the world to, to reach where it's trying to get to, you know, it's like um, there were many great tzaddikim who this, is, this line is attributed to. Uh, there are also people who weren't such great tzaddikim who this line is attributed to. It's a, it's a line which has been said in, in, in many different contexts. But something to the effect of when I was younger, I thought that it would go and change the whole world. As I got a little bit older, I realized maybe I could change my community. Got a little bit older, I said maybe, my, maybe I could work with my family. And then when I finally reached a full age of maturity, I realized that I have to work on myself. And the truth is that when a person works on themselves, it's much easier to go and clean or point out the dirt on somebody else's doorstep or in somebody else's room. And it's much harder to clean the dirt off of my own doorstep and to clean my own room and to take care of my own things. And it's... You know, when I look at somebody else's Yetzirah or when I look at somebody else's shortcomings, it's very easy to say, why can't that person just get it together? But when I'm looking at my own, all of a sudden these insurmountable problems sort of creep up. And so the Tshuva Pratis this is actually, our personal narrative is undoubtedly is the, uh, is the first step towards, or is a microcosm, I should rather say, of what's happening on a, uh, on a, continental level in, in, you know, in, in, in all of you, in, well, first in a country level in Eretz Yisrael and even in a communal level in remote and then country level and then a continental level and then on a earth level and then on a cosmic level, the entire world is returning to, to this proper state. I, I mentioned it before in one of the, I think, one of the Hakadama Shiurim, but probably the, the greatest animating feature of Rav Kook Sefer or Satshuva here is this notion that Rav Kook understood that tshuva does not necessitate that you did anything wrong, per se. Meaning you didn't necessarily have to do anything wrong. And that stems from a point, something that Rav Kook is going to say later in the Sefer explicitly, not till we get much further into the Sefer, but he's going to hint at it here and he's going to say it several places as we go later into the Sefer, that the greatest chilul Hashem, as I've mentioned before, the greatest vacuum of Hashem's presence that ever was created was the creation of the world itself. The creation, the, before we ever did anything wrong, when we think of these terms of right and wrong, before any Jew or Jewess ever did anything wrong or took a step in the wrong direction, the world was already in this cosmic state of, of just the throes of brokenness from the very inception of the creation of the world. Not in a way that maybe a certain cousin religion of ours has that there's this, you know, there's this, uh, uh, I forget what's, what's the lesson they call it, there's like this, um, uh, what do they call it? The original sin. It's not an original sin, but that part and parcel of the creation, what Hashem was doing when He created the world, is He was playing a very painful, but ultimately very rewarding game of hide and seek. And as 
difficult as it might be, you know, there's a very famous story about the, one of the tzaddikim, the Magad of Mezrich, was one time uh, talking with one of his descendants, and uh, they, they say this story about other Rebbes also, but I first heard about the Magad of Mezrich. He's playing, uh, he, was, he was in his house, and he was talking to one of his descendants who come into the room crying, and he said, what happened? He said, I was playing hide-and-seek with my friends, and, uh, and you know, I had found a really good hiding spot, and, and <laughs> after an hour, I came out, and they were all sitting there playing marbles on the floor. They had stopped looking for me. And the Magad of Mezrich started crying, you know? And, and, this, and this grandson of the Magad said, I, Saba, I'm sorry, Zaidi, I didn't mean to... I didn't mean to make you cry. It's going to be okay. I just, I was upset. I wanted to share it with somebody. And, and the Magad said, no, no. He said, he said I'm, I'm sorry that your friends did that to you. He said, but can you imagine how Hashem feels? He's been hiding. He found such a good hiding spot. And he's hiding right in, right in plain sight. But he found a good hiding spot. He found a good way of hiding. He's called Kel Mestater. And he, he, he made the world in such a way where he's hiding just beyond the vet. And we just, we gave up looking. You know, so many people have given up looking. But the truth is that more than our giving up looking is that Hashem made this amazing hiding spot for himself right here in the physical world. In other words, he created this whole world filled with sights and sounds and all these different things that we can either use to find him right here. Like I, like I mentioned once before, uh, Simcha Bunim, the great Simcha Bunim of Pshischa used to say on the, the verse that we, we all recite uh, daily, or at least we try to recite daily, Maloha Arts Kinyanecha. The whole world is filled with your possessions, Hashem. Everything belongs to Hashem. The Rav Simcha Bunim explained, that's the simple interpretation of the Pasuk. Rav Simcha Bunim explained, Maloha Arts Kinyanecha doesn't just mean that the world is filled with your possessions, but the world is filled with ways to possess you, Hashem. That everything in the world, every banana muffin, and every cup of water, and every chaver to your right, and empty chair to your left, every single thing in the world is a means of connecting to Hashem, or a means of hiding His presence. The word olam itself means from the Lashon of He'elam. It's, Hashem is hiding right here in the presence. And to the degree that a person chooses to look and to find Hashem, they will find Him. But the greatest chil Hashem, the greatest vacuum of Hashem, when we think of chil Hashem, we think of you did a naughty thing, you know, you embarrassed the Jewish people by, you know, by acting not nicely on that camp trip that you went on or something. That's how it like, got ingrained into us. But that's not what it means. It means a vacuum of Hashem's presence. Nothing that you or I could ever do could ever create a vacuum of divine presence in the way that Hashem created a vacuum of divine presence by just creating the world, by creating the physical space of the world. And so for Rav Kook, the world is doing tshuva from the moment that Hashem created the world until the very last moment when the world attains its full rectification. And that knowledge of ein od milvado, there is nothing other than Hashem, not there is nothing other than Hashem to the exclusion of other gods or other ideologies, but that there is nothing other than Hashem kipshuto. Not there's nothing other than Hashem also, and therefore I ignore everybody else because there's only just me and Hashem and I'm on a mountaintop somewhere and I'm just meditating on Hashem. But that I am fully engaged in the world. I'm fully engaged in the world in a way that I never was before because I, I see that the entire world itself is animated. My children are animated by Hashem. And the, and, the, and the job that I do in the world is animated by Hashem. The goal of the world is, that's, this was a big discussion amongst, uh, one of the big debates between the Rambam and the Ramban, is that Tchiyas HaMesim is not a temporary measure at the end that just so Hashem could do reward and punishment, then we go into this world where we're not embodied. 
the Ramban leveled very, very strong arguments against the Ramban about this, and this is basically the, the standard theology of the Jewish people, is that is we come back into the physical world and we experience ein od milvado from within the physical body, from within the physical space. And so the whole world is on this path of tshuva. The whole world is moving towards this world of tshuva. And I don't want to say we're here in Eretz Yisrael, and there's some people who are tuning in from Eretz Yisrael, some people from outside. I don't want to say anything that will get me in the, the negative graces of, of people, but, uh, and it shouldn't, it shouldn't. But somebody came to the Chavetz Chaim, the Chavetz Chaim was still alive uh, by the Balfour Declaration. Uh, and they said to the Chavetz Chaim that, uh, they said to the Chavetz Chaim that, uh, you know, Eschalta de Geula, Eretz Yisrael, the Chavetz Chaim said, Eschalta de Geula happened the minute that Hashem created the world. That was the beginning of the redemption of the world. The second that Hashem created the world, it, it was probably the lowest moment in terms of this long hollow coming back, but the redemption begins from that moment because the world is constantly in this state of evolution, it's constantly in this state of elevation, as you were saying a moment ago before we began rolling tape here. So we're going to jump in in a minute to, to read the words of Rav Kook in, in, in Orsa Tshuva, but I just want to, for, just for half a second, to look at a very important letter that Rav Kook, Rav Kook in a number of places, Again, maybe this will also, I don't want to touch any wrong buttons here. Rav Kook, in a number of places, wrote letters and essays about the topic of evolution, about this raging issue of the day, this raging theory of the day of evolution. Something which, when it first entered into Jewish consciousness, or at least when I should say, when it first entered into mainstream Jewish consciousness, because there was always this, this notion hiding within the esoteric works of of, of Judaism, it, it, it caused a stir, to say it mildly, and different people weighed in in different ways. There's a famous letter from the Teferis Yisrael, which is printed in his commentary to, um, to Perk Chelek, where he describes certain passages in the Medrash that seem to imply that the world is very, 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 very old, and that when we speak about the, the, the world being 5,782 uh, 5, years old, excuse me, so that's talking about from Adam Harishon, but there's a whole big history before Adam Harishon. That's what we say when, when we date a, a document, an official document. So we say, based on from Adam Harishon, from, from day zero, so to speak, is from when there's human consciousness, when time begins to be recognized. So it's a, it's a big topic, it's a big topic. And there certainly were great uh, sages, including the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who believed in... That's how old the world is. Anything else, there's terutzim for that also. And how old the world is, is, a, is what it looks like through science is, is not necessarily clear. And the Lubavitcher wrote long letters about this. And I'm not here to talk about the merits or the demerits of, of the actual theory. Or if a Victor Miller wrote a very long book about it. There's, there's tons of literature on the topic. Uh, like anything else, it's something which is worthy of study. And, and, and there's no, both directions, there's, there's, perfectly sound uh, Yari Shemaim who, who fit nicely into, into every camp of how exactly to, to manage it. Rav Kook, in his letters, wrote a letter to somebody who asked him to address his thoughts on this issue. And it's a long letter. I'm not going to read the whole letter. But what Rav Kook, what I do want to read, which is you know, just one or two lines from the letter, is that Rav Kook said, first of all, 
he, he gets into a little bit. He says, first of all, it's never a, a good idea to argue with an idea on the level of, of being afraid of it. Meaning to start from a position of defensiveness is not a good way to, to argue with an idea. He said, we can argue with the idea if the idea is wrong. But the first thing to do is to see if there's a way that we can work this into, that it shouldn't be so threatening. But then he says, well, he says this is a new idea and there's a lot that needs, there's a lot still missing from the idea and there's a lot that needs to still be developed in the idea. And he gives us several different ways to show that we have, he gives four different approaches to show how in Chazal we could, we could uh, anticipate such an idea and we could say such a thing. But then Rav Cook says something which is so beautiful. He says, but the truth is, I'm so excited about this idea. He said, I'm so excited about this idea because my whole life, I've been trying to get people to think in this way. I've been trying to get people to think in this way, not in the terms of the origins of the universe, not in the terms of the origins of species, but in terms of the direction of, forget about the past. Of, I'm, not, I'm not so interested in talking about right now, because the theory will work itself out and it, it could work within Yiddishkeit and, and within Torah and it could, and it could not, or, depending on how it's understood and there's a lot of different pieces to the puzzle and they're, they're still working it out themselves scientifically exactly how this works, still theory, it's not yet considered to be hard science, especially when Rav Kook is writing. He said, but s- s- instead of getting so excited about looking at the origin of looking at the past, he said, what does this theory imply about the future? It implies what I've been trying to say all along, which is that the world is becoming... The world is opening up. The world is evolving. The world is moving towards a, a more perfect world. We're moving from a more basic world to a, to a more perfected world. And that there is a built-in course correction that Hashem placed into the world. And this is what Chazal mean when they said in the Gemara Mesechim, we didn't even read a, a word of Oros HaTshuva yet. This is what Chazal mean when they said in, in Mesechim Psachim that Tshuva is Kadmala Olam. That Tshuva exists before the world even comes into, into existence. Tshuva existing before the world, before there's even a, a one molecule, before there's even one protein that could then develop and become something greater, before that Hashem put into the world, there is a process, and the process has built within it a course-correcting device that automatically the world is shifting towards good. And this is a very exciting prospect for me, says Rav Kohat. This is what I've been saying all along that the world is becoming. So this is in letter Kufla Medalid, in Igros Ra'aya, in Rav Kook's letters, in Chelek Aleph. Ha'ikr hu ha'toch. They'll, they'll work out the science. And, and there's room for that, and he, he addresses that more in other places. The main thing is looking, and this is everything Rav Cook was doing, the main thing is looking at the inner point. What's the inner, what's the Oros evolution? You know, Rav Cook would have written a, a, a book on evolution, he would have called it Oros evolution. What's the or that's in evolution? What's the or that's embedded within this theory? What's the, what's the inner nakuda that this is trying to bring to the world? If a person does this in general, so then they'll see how misro- that everything is elevating to its, to its proper place. And a person will see how these things are already found in earlier Svarim. Sheyesh Efsharius Gemura. And what is this? 
that the world is holeches umisale. The world is marching on and is is improving, is going up. The only thing we need to know, even if a person goes up to a very high place, even if a person is, is, is tending in his individual life, and that's also why this is such a beautiful introduction to what we're learning about, because a person's individual path of tshuva is their individual path of tshuva, and even if a person falls and fails on their face, the world is still going to go on. You know, like Mordechai said to Esther, if you decide to bow out in Jewish history and you don't do what you were meant to do, there's going to be, the world is going to go on. The world is proceeding. And so Rav Cook says, this concept of evolution is telling me that it puts the, if you look at it properly, it puts the focus back on every individual, that each individual needs to look at their own life and say the world is, is getting better. From the moment Hashem created the world, the world is getting better. But I have to take a long, hard look in the mirror and say whether I am being pulled along in the stream of that process or whether the world is getting better in spite of me. And it's never like 100%, you know. Is the world getting better in spite of my actions, in spite of the way I talk to people, in spite of the way that I, I behave? Or, or is the world getting better because of the way that I'm behaving? And even in my own personal life, my actions, only the best of my actions are going to survive. In this way of survival of the fittest, it means that the best part of me is the part that's cheering me on the most and is the part that's going to reach it to the end. All the other parts, like the Maharal describes and like Rav describes over and over again, and with this we'll, we'll now go to the actual Sefer Vasa all the other parts of me, they, they're, they're feathers that somehow landed on me. All the negative parts of me they're, they're mutations that crept in, but if they're not useful to my own growth, then the world itself, the, the, the mechanisms that Hashem used to create the world itself will eventually straighten me out. A human being, eventually, eventually, and it should come sooner rather than later, but eventually a person finds that they can't tolerate sivlos mitzrayim, they can't tolerate the constriction that's come to them through their own mitzrayim, through their own constrictions that they've created for themselves. So now we begin Parakdamad. And again, it's very, very hard. But we'll try it together. We'll try it together. If somebody, somebody's Hebrew is better than mine, it's certainly possible. There are many people who lived here longer than me. And if, if I'm pronouncing a word wrong or if I'm not translating it properly, so then uh, you'll, you'll, you'll jump in. Shotfim heim zerame ha-tshuva. Tshuva, the process of tshuva, is shotaf. It's, it's like, a, like a river that's just gushing forth. There's a current of tshuva that is just carrying the world towards a better place. You know, the, 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 the imagery of a river, the only thing I could think about about the river, you know, not being the right imagery is that rivers flow downstream. Here, the river of tshuva flows upstream. It's pushing us up. Or maybe, in a certain sense, it's pushing our ego down. It's, it's making more room for the, for the neshama. Ha-pratisva and this is true on the individual level. There is a force of tshuva. There is a baskol, like the Gemara says. There's a baskol that rings out every single day. It says, shuvu banim shovavim, return wayward children. And every single day, that river is gushing forth into a person's life and saying, you could do better. I believe you could do better. 
The Gemara says that every single blade of grass, every single person certainly, has a malach that's standing over it and hitting, hitting it, but hopefully gently, you know, hitting it, waking it up, you know, giving it a nice, a nice pat on the back and saying, hey, grow, gadel, grow. It's not hitting you in a way, that's how I know it's hitting nicely, you know, because it's not hitting you and saying you're, you're nothing, you're worthless, but it's hitting you on the back and it's saying, grow, you could, you could do this. There's a, there's a zrima, there's a, there's a, a, a flowing, there's a coursing stream of tshuva. Hapratis vaklalis, in the individual's life and in the, in the general life, in the universal life. Dimyonam, this stream, this stream, kigale shalhavos shalguf hashemesh. They're like uh, waves of light. They're like licks of fire that come off of the Guf Hashemesh. It comes off of the off of the, the ball of the sun. Asher bimulchamas ad heimisparzim vaolim. That with great with great internal battle, right? With the combustion of what's going on in the sun, with great force and kind of like this give and take, they shoot forth, misparzim vaolim. They shoot forth and they and they and they and they go up. This force of tshuva, this force which tells every blade of grass to grow and every human being to grow and to improve, is, has this power of, of growth like the sun, like the sun causes, causes the trees to blossom and causes the flowers to, to, to blossom and causes a person to, to grow also. So they shoot forth with their eternal battle, this concept of tshuva, these rays of tshuva that are, that are surging through the world, they give life to innumerable worlds, not just to each of our individual worlds, which there are so many, there are billions of people in the world, and that the whole world is being called to tshuva, but also in worlds that we can't even imagine that exist beyond this world. Tshuva is pulling the entire world back to its, to its proper source. Ein koach, what a way to start. Again, remember, this is like kind of the, the start of the, the formal start of the Sefer. The first three chapters were all introduction of here is the world of tshuva in large. And now, so here of Kuk again is, is admitting, Ein koach leklot hamon harav, we don't even have the machinery. We don't even have the, the, the koach, the klot, to, to take in all the amazing colors. You know, light is comprised of all these different colors. It's just that we don't have the, the means of seeing all of it. You know, and when we see a, a ray of light, it's blinding. It's too much to take in. It's only when it reflects off of you know, off of a, a plant or a tree or a sweater or a ball or, a, or you know, or, or a person's face, then off the reflection, off of that physical thing, we can begin to take a tiny bit of that color. But the, the, the light itself and the colors that are contained within the light is so powerful that And by the way, even the colors that we can conceive of, there's a whole spectrum of colors that a human eye can't even see even after it bounces off of things because it's, it's still too saturated with, with, the, with the original light of the sun. Hazos mi'ur la'olam kulam. Shemesh 
This is the light of tshuva. In other words, if the world is progressing towards this perfected state, and that Yemos HaMashiach and Olam Haba itself is this paradox of, as Rav Kook is going to say this, I'll spend a minute on this right now because I think it's a very important point. It's a point that Rav Kook speaks about and, and in the Svarim of, of Ishbitz and Radzin, of the Meah we find this idea as well. The only difference between the progression that's taking place now and the perfection of the world to come, okay, this is a very, very important point and very, maybe if this is the first time you're hearing it, it'll be hard to wrap your head around, but I hope I'll do justice to it. The only difference between now and then is not that the world will be perfect then, because the world will still be, will never be Hashem. Hashem is perfection. The difference between now and then is that there is a frustration now in the process of perfection. In other words, now we don't enjoy the process of perfection. The process of perfection is itself, we're so, we're so stuck in the zenness, in the olam hazeh, in the moment that we're in right now, that we can't appreciate the, the, the becoming that's happening right now. Every letter, every word, every sound that comes out of my mouth is for myself personally and for everybody listening. And even for people who aren't listening, there's a certain effect that's happening that we are perfecting. And every brick that's being laid in every house and every, everything that's happening in the world is part of the perfecting of the world. Even the missteps that are happening are a longer route towards eventually waking up and realizing that things are moving in the right direction and, and bringing it back. The only difference between now and that world, which is called Olam Haba, and it's even in the names, Olam Hazeh is focused on, in this moment, things are not yet perfect, and therefore it robs me of the joy of the process of getting there. All right, we spoke about this once before in the shir, we were talking about how everybody can appreciate, you know, standing under the chuppah with your child. We don't feel the joy of getting that child to a place where somebody would actually want to marry them, you know, or somebody would actually be willing to, 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 to take them as their husband or wife. We don't experience the joy while we're doing it. We experience the joy only when we're at the end of the process. And even that is not the end of the process, but it's, an, it's a relative end. And so we can, we can even wrap our head around that concept. Olam Haba is saying that that which is coming, the perfection which is coming after, the infinite perfection which is coming after, I experience the joy of that perfection as it's happening. It's what Rav Kook is going to describe in Orsa Truth itself as the taste of the fruit tasting like the tree. The, the tree, the bark of the tree is not very tasty. We all climb the tree so we can get to the fruit at the top. But if, the, like, like Chazal said, it was originally supposed to be that the, the taste of the fruit and the tree were supposed to be one and the same. That was part of the original creation plan until the ground had its own way, meaning gash, Gashmi, way of looking at the world, had its own way about things. So it should have been that we should taste the sweetness of the fruit while we are, not that the tree itself should be fruit, but that the process of climbing the tree and what that means poetically, the process should be as wonderful as that when I sink my teeth into the sweet success of bringing that thing to fruition. And so for Rav Kook, he's saying that the first step to tshuva is recognizing that the Shemesh HaTshuva is a spectrum of colors that you cannot even imagine how far this thing goes. It is so blindingly, exquisitely beautiful that we don't, in this moment, none of us have the kalim to take the perfection that awaits us after we perfect ourselves even further. 
In other words, there is what we know we're lacking and what's kind of like ahead of us and what we know we need to do in order to get to the next level of perfection. But there are hamon rav shal tzvaim harabim shemesh agad lazos there's almost an infinite spectrum of color and beauty that awaits in this world of tshuva. Shemesh tshuva. This is the son of tshuva. And so the moment that Hashem created the world, He offered us the possibility of being okay with the process of returning without actually being there. That's the one caveat. A creation can never become Hashem. The only thing that a creation can do is move out of the way enough to recognize that they are on an infinite path back towards perfection. Right? As one of uh, my colleagues in Yeshiva Doreth likes to say, we are not human beings, but we are human becomings. Mm-hmm. And the, re- the moment that we recognize that we are human becomings and that we're okay with that and that we try to exacerbate the process especially in this world, the, the quicker we begin to enjoy that process and enjoy the perfection instead of robbing ourselves of higher and higher levels of perfection every moment. <coughs> As a result of their, the strength and the intensity of this shetef, of this surging force of the river, or the, you know, Cook is mixing metaphors here. We have fire and we have water, and the two of them are mixing together. But... The, the surging force of this shetef, as a result of their <clears throat> incredible speed, their wondrous speed, because of the intensity of, the, of this force and the speed of this force, as a result of the fact that where does tshuva come from? Tshuva is something which enters into the world um, from a place which is before the world was created. Now, Rav Kook is going to say something which is very, I told you, it's a hard piece tonight, I, I warned you from the beginning. Rav Kook says that the tshuva comes to the world from a place that's beyond the world. Now, what is the world? <laughs> Sorry to be so philosophical, Rav Kook's, you know, for, something to, for anything to exist in the world, it exists at a particular place. I'll give you, this is the way I always say this. It makes it very easy to understand. If I were to say to you that this cup, okay, this cup exists um, at, what time is it? At 9.12 p.m. and 52 seconds on this day in, in, on Wednesday, December 15th, or the Hebrew calendar date, the 12th of Teves, in the year 5782, but in no place. Can you wrap your head around such a thing? It exists at that time, but in no place. In Davarkaze. That means to say it doesn't exist, because it needs to exist in a place for it to exist. Okay, what if I say to you that the cup exists in, on planet Earth, in Eretz Yisrael, in Ramot Bet Yerushalayim, on Mishol HaRotam, number 15, at the dining room table, in my hand, between my thumb and my pointer finger, but at no time. Also doesn't make any sense, right? 
Which of those two, though, is harder to wrap your head around? That it exists at a time with no space, or it exists here, but at no time? Which one is, which one is, which one is, I don't know if you're answering, which is easier or harder? Which is easier? The latter. We disagree. I'm getting my sight Easier. Space is easier for us. Space is easier for us because we are more physical and time is a less physical creation. It's a creation nevertheless. The Vilna Gon said, it's much more abstract. Time is much more abstract. To say that this exists in this space, I could picture all of that and then time is something that I superimpose on top of that afterwards because it's much more abstract. Right? The Vilna Gon said that Bereshit bara in the beginning, Hashem created heaven and the earth. So that means to say that there's a beginning, which means that that word, bireshit, says the Vilna Gon, is the creation of time. Mm. Meaning that's the first thing that Hashem created, which means it's closer to that abstract reality that exists before there is physical space. Mm-hmm. First there is bireshit, first there's time, and then there's shemayim v'arts, then there is space. Mm-hmm. So in the Vilna Gon's explanation of the world, <clears throat> there's first time and then there's space, which is why Time is harder to wrap our heads around. There's an amazing, everyone's okay? There's an amazing, it's, it makes my mind twist also. There's an amazing essay from Rav Hutner. Rav Hutner. Rav Hutner, it's in Pachet Yitzchak in the Ma'amarim to Pesach, where he says that part of the exodus from Egypt, which is done bechipazon, which happens in this very fast type of thing, has to happen very quickly, is because the neshama of a Jewish person comes from that place which is beyond space and time. It comes from that, from that other world. It comes from that other place. So Rav Hutner says, he quotes a medrash from, from Chazal, that Chazal say, imagine, uh, here, let's bring this down to earth a little bit. Ever, anybody here see the movie Aladdin when they were a young child? Mm-hmm. Everyone's willing to admit that, okay? So Aladdin, so the, the, the poor boy is trying to impress like the princess, you know? So Chazal have this medrash. They say there was once a princess and she somehow got tied up with this village boy, you know, and anything the village boy tried to give her, the greatest thing he could get his hands on and create and give for her, it would make her cry. Why? Because she says, I remember what I had in my father's palace. Meaning anything he tries to give her, the nicest thing that he could possibly imagine, doesn't hold a candle to what she, she remembers from her father's palace. This is the medrash that Chazal say. They say the soul comes from this palace of the king. And whatever you try to give it that's not from the palace of the king, the best banana muffin in the world, it doesn't do it for the princess. The princess needs something that reminds her of home. The only thing that the prince can give her, the only thing that the prince can give her is a letter from her father, is a picture from the palace, which is what Torah and mitzvahs are. That's what Chazal say. Every time we give, do a mitzvah, every time we learn a piece of Torah, it's a reminder to the princess that's wedded to our body of home. Just importantly, Allah Udid means Oleh and Allah Udid. <laughs> Darshaning Aladdin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To yeah. go up with law. To go up? With law. Allah Udid. To go up with the law. Yeah. So the, the, the word Torah itself it's means Hora, means Din. So to go up with the law. Okay, now Darshan uh, Jasmine. <laughs> okay, so I, I don't doubt it, you know. Rabbi Nachman said that all of the stories that the world tells are also filled with wondrous things. They just, sometimes they did it out of order. They put the pieces out of order. They put the beginning and the end, or the beginning and the middle. And, 
you know, they didn't know how to, or they're missing a little bit, or they added something that shouldn't have been there. But all the stories are very, very deep stories. So I believe it, you know. I love it, Dim. It's from Arabic. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, um, so this is the story of, of the princess who wants to... Now, the last thing that the princess needs to do, meaning after she's already distanced herself from all of the physical things in the world that are, that are making her sad that she's not home, the last thing that she needs to shake off is time or something which is a very sensitive thing that only someone who's really, really in touch with this princess really understands that this bothers her also. So Rav Hutner writes in Pachad Yitzchak that on Pesach, which is like the anniversary of the Jewish people's kind of coming out of Egypt and, and beginning to return the princess back home, there's like a certain hypersensitivity. And so therefore, even something taking a lot of time bothers the princess. Even something taking a lot of time. So that's why if you've ever been at a piece of theater, like everyone's eating the matzah very, very quickly, everyone, you know, and, and those, you know, cleaning up the house and everything is done with this unbelievable speed. Why? Because, okay, we've already done away with, you know, we've already done away with some of the, the, the baser type of instincts, but now the very last thing that's holding us back from really, really embracing home the way that it was before is that we have to somehow, so Huttner describes this as the, the attempt to escape time itself. It's like we th- we're playing this game as if like, if we do it fast enough, we could somehow break the time, you know, we pass the speed of light and time will stand still. This is, this is a concept that we have in this world. That if we break this, if we do it with passing the speed of light, then time and space sort of kind of like stop working in the normal way that we, that we think of things. Okay, now we can try to understand what Rav Cook is saying here. So, Rav Cook is saying, because we exist, because tshuva comes from this world which is beyond time. Remember, we said tshuva is it comes before the world. And the world is a combination of space and time. It comes from that world which is before that, which is, by the way, okay, maybe we can understand this, this is, by the way, why tshuva can fix the past. Because if a person somehow breaks the time barrier, if they go to that place which is before there was time, then maybe they can undo something that happened before because there's no such concept as before, now, after. Because time is merely one of the constricting forces that Hashem created in order to give us this experience that we're having right now. It's a necessary part of the component of that. And tshuva comes from the place which is before that. And it comes with such rapidness that it, it's almost hard to even feel. It's, tshuva is happening even without us being able to feel it. It's not like a force like, like gravity. I'll quote the same, uh, the same uh, colleague of mine who has many wonderful sayings like this, Rabbi David Aaron. He has a number of really wonderful books as well. So Rabbi Aaron, um, Rabbi Aaron, who's the one who said about being a human becoming, also uh, likes to say, he says, I know that gravity exists because I could feel it pulling me down. And he said, and I know that Hashem exists because I could feel him pulling me up. I mean, Hashem is synonymous with tshuva in this. That's the, where tshuva is coming from, the makor hachayim. I know that tshuva exists because I, I feel it pulling me up. Ah, so, but do I though? Do I always feel tshuva pulling me up? So Rav is saying it's happening with such speed. It's just like in the same way. We don't feel the world spinning very, because it's moving so fast that we don't even feel it. And in the same way, we, tshuva is so part of every single movement that I make. Every morsel of food I put in my mouth, every step that I take, every 
movement of my head or my eyes is all being orchestrated by this force of nature, this gushing force, this shotvim zorme atshuva, but it's happening so fast. It's coming from this place which is beyond time so fast that I could even miss it. I could, I could, I could totally miss it. Haneshama hayechidus vatsiborius. Each person's individual soul and the communal, what's happening on a communal level. Ha'olamis olamis. What's happening is to an individual, concentric circles. What's happening in my individual olam katan? What's happening in our community of remote? What's happening in the world? Or our online community over here? Sorry, I didn't mean to exclude you. Ha'olamis, what's happening in the world on planet Earth, so to speak? Olme olamis, in the entire cosmos, in the entire galaxy, and beyond the galaxy. In the world of Asiya, Yitzira, Bria, Atsilas, all of the different worlds. Olme olamim. Kilevia nora tzoekes b'chavle letikun gamor. It's like a roaring lion, like a levia, like a roaring lion. Tzoekes b'chavleha, that is somehow chained down and needs to break out of that chain in order to break through. It's, it's an attempt to literally break through the sound barrier and get back to that world of tshuva. B'chavle letikun gamor. It's attempting to, to achieve its final tikun. Limitsius ha'idalis, trying to achieve that ideal reality, that ideal perfect reality. What's the levia nora? What's this? This you know, he's throwing a lot of imagery here at us. So the truth is that I don't know. But I know that my uh, Rebbe Rav Moshe Weinberger gave some shirim on Versa Chuva, which is one of the things that I've used in the past. This also. Um, there's a wonderful commentary from uh, Rav Aviner and, and, uh, and Chagai London has written a commentary. And there's, there's uh, many commentaries and many people have given, and I, I tried to dabble in, in all of them in preparation. So Rav Weinberger suggested also that this imagery of the lion is a reference perhaps to the Gemara in Yuma. The Gemara in Yuma talks about how, just very briefly, one second, I mean, he has a lengthy thing about it. I'm not going to go into it so at length, but just to give us something to chew on. But this is a roaring lion. So the Gemara in Yuma has the story about how the Anshe Knesset HaGedola basically wanted to do away with the Yitzhar Hara for Avodah Zarah. And they fasted for a number of days until finally Hashem gave the Yitzhar Hara of Avodah Zarah over to them and allowed them to trap it. And the Gemara describes how this Yitzhar Hara for Avodah Zarah came out in this, uh, in this guise of a fiery lion and they trapped it in this metal case. And what Rav Weinberger described here is that ancillary to taking away that Yitzhah for Avodah Zarah, which was, that was a positive thing, we also lost the force of prophecy. Prophecy is the holy lion, so to speak, that Rav Kook is describing here. That what is the job of the prophets of the Jewish people? What is the job of, of the Nevi'ah Yisrael? The, the prophets of the Jewish people are those who are roaring like the lion of holiness, who are trying to bring the world to its ideal state. They are picturing for us literally. And by the way, they're not just picturing it in some kind of like abstract sense, but I would say that a lot of the world, certainly the major religions of the world, which is quite a large, are all based on these prophecies. They're all based on the, 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 the ideal vision. They've gotten you know, confused along the way and so have the Jewish people along the way. But the roaring lion, this 
which is screaming from her chains, begging the world to come to its state of perfection, it could sometimes be a very painful process. It could be a painful process when we recognize that there are these ideals that we are begging to bring to light. There are these, the, there are these notions that, we're, that in our own individual hopes for ourselves and for our families and for our community, and when a person sees the ideal and knows the ideal and recognizes the ideal and feels that it's just not happening, it's a painful thing. It hurts. And when you don't see how you can actually get there, it hurts. But that hurt, says Rav Cook, is a healthy hurt. It's the healthy hurt that we described in some of the earlier chapters. It's the healthy hurt that says, I don't know how to do this. Let me speak to a, a good friend and a mentor. And, to, and, and maybe they don't have the answer, but maybe we can brainstorm together how to bring myself to the self-actualized state, how to bring the community to the self-actualized state, how to bring the Jewish people to that self-actualized state. It hurts, says Rav Cook. <laughs> it's mach'ev. And it, 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 it eats away and also softens us. It's, on the one hand, it kind of like, it's, uh, on the one hand, it's marek and koev. It hurts us and it kind of like, um, it, it grates at us. But it does so in a way that's similar to the probably not so, if, if meat was sentient after it was already shechted, you know, the process of then pouring salt on the wounds, so to speak, pouring salt on the meat to, you know, take out the, and soften the meat in that way, to take out the blood and to soften the meat. You can imagine that salt on muscle, you know, if it was sentient and if it was conscious, would be a very painful thing. But it also softens it and prepares it to be able to be able to, to, to reach its, its desired state. And so it's painful on the one hand. Kimelach, it's like salt. Shemamtikas abasar. In the same way that salt somehow grants taste to the bitterness of the meat, so too this, this experience, this salty pain of wanting to free ourselves and achieve this perfection that the world has to offer um, helps our bitterness to, to reach its... The, the salt of tshuva is a painful experience, but it brings us to sweeten this bitterness. Okay, so here's the last... Uh, three, four lines. I hope that we're still within time. We are basically there. So here, Rav Cook, and the truth is, we, if we don't, if we just read it and we pick up with it next time, that's also fine, because the next piece is, is quite short, and we don't have to do one piece every time. We, we, there's no rules. So here, Rav Cook does something which is very strange, and I don't have even all of the sages more sagely than myself weren't able to help me here. But Rav Kook here, in the throes of this ecstatic, mystical, philosophical, practical, whatever is happening here in, through Rav Kook's pen, Rav Kook finishes off by saying the following. I'll just read the words and maybe someone will have an idea. I, I have an idea, but cautiously to, to say. Bahagos Milin. Now, Rav Kook is talking about tshuva, but he's also talking about the experience of being able to say something that is unsayable, unspeakable. Because the ideal that we're attempting to achieve, 
like Rav Cook said, it's like the sun itself. You can't look at it. There's no, the ideal, even what the Nevi'im said is, right? Oh, this is Gavaldik. I didn't even realize it for a second, but Chazal say, the Nevi'im were all talking about Yemos HaMashiach. But regarding Olam Haba, the Pasuk, which we must say about Olam Haba, is, Ayin lo rase elokim zulasecha. That which is this ideal state of the messianic vision, the eschatology of, 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 of Mashiach, the eschatology of Mashiach, this, this, this final state of re- reaching the perfection of Mashiach, that is Yemos HaMashiach. But Olam Haba, which comes after Yemos HaMashiach, no one knows what that is. We don't have the words to even describe that. So Rav Kook says, when you're trying to describe the indescribable, this is what happens. Bahagos Milin, in trying to describe words, Specifically about tshuva, we don't have the ability to do this, but I think he's talking about the experience of also saying something which is impossible to say. When one feels that it's impossible to describe something, says Rav Kook. <clears throat> we can't give we can't give expression to the machshava recheves hashchakim azos to this broad expansive uh, thought. Yichudim anu miachdim. So what do we do? Yichudim anu miachdim. Okay, that is most certainly a mystical expression. We are miyachid yichudim, which means we make mystical unifications. We do. We we if when we don't feel like we could express this properly. We work in all types of uh, permutations of spheros and, and, and parables and gematrios and things that are way harder to actually, you know, say in a concrete way. We, we, instead of trying to say the words, because we'll never succeed at saying the words, we try to be in our mind. We try to make mystical unifications in our mind. We think about different divine names in order to attempt to describe this thing. Okay, then Rav Kook says, we'll do this next time. I'm just going to read it now. We'll read it again in the beginning. Nikuda, when we're trying to describe something, there is a, there is a vowel. There is a nikuda, nikudot. A shva, a, a, a patach, a komatz. Now the nikuda represents Shemayim v'aretz chadashim umlu'ehem atsurim sham. A nekuda is a tiny little dot that we know within that nekuda, if we would just open it up and look inside, we would stretch that, that chirik. You know, you have like the little dot of the chirik. If you would take the chirik by two hands and you would pull it open, it would, you know, it would, there would be a whole, if you ever see like a picture of the Gal- of the Milky Way, it looks like a little dot. But inside there, there's a whole world inside. There's olamos chadashos inside of that nekuda. Os v'olamim mezgalim. When I take that nekuda and I attach it to an os, to a letter, all of a sudden, that nekuda, which can't be pronounced without the help of a letter, and the letter without the help of the nekuda, the two of them need each other together. What's a shva without... I could do be if I put it with a bez. What's a bez without a shva? What sound does it make? It can't make the sound. It can't... It doesn't make a sound. You need the os and the nekuda together. And when I put those together, then olam misgalim. Then the potential world that's inside of that dot begins to open up. Tevos. And then I could put letters together and I can make revavos olmei ad vahamun yitzurim. 
and I can make an infinite, infinite number of things with these letters. Which is, contains within it tranquility and the joy of the God of all gods, which is filled with peace and truth. And the world begins to proceed and to perfect itself. Now, what exactly Rav Kook is trying to say here at the end is, um, is a great mystery. Uh, one must be a great mystic in order to even attempt to understand what Rav Kook is trying to say here. What we could say, just so we are not left, you know, just baffled, is that Rav Kook is saying that when a person recognizes that something is impossible to say, when someone is left recognizing that even describing something is so difficult to do, then there is a process that a person has in their mind where they focus on the most basic parts of speech and build it up slowly. And what we'll start with next time, in Mitzvah Shem, which we'll, we'll hopefully be able to at least bring this down to earth a tiny bit, we'll end here. What we're going to begin with next time, um, before we go on to the next piece, is just a small detour, a small detour into the understanding of how the world is maybe perhaps one of my favorite topics in the world, but how the world achieves its perfection through learning how to speak out, like any therapist will tell you, being able to actually speak out that which you find difficult to speak out will help to get to the next level of perfection that the world can actually achieve its, its next shlav. So how does a person actually slow down the stream of tshuva, which is trying to bring them to the next level? So Rav Kook here, I would argue, if we could say anything, is that Rav Kook is giving us the key, the key to being able to access higher and higher levels of perfection. And that is through speech, through talking it out, through davening out what my hopes and my dreams are, and being able to struggle through the articulation of what I hope and what I think is the next level of perfection that goes beyond the place where I am right now. In other words, once we're able to do that, so then we are able to, to create new words, new concepts, new ideals, new ideas, which we didn't even think were there before, and then we could start to try to actualize those and then create newer words to get to the next level. Okay, we'll start with that. Next step.